Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. I am here with Adam Levy, who is the host of the Mint podcast, also creator of Bello. Adam, I'm very excited to be chatting today. Thank you for coming on the show. What is up, Chase? Thank you for having me. We were just doing the other way around. You came on the Mint podcast, and now I'm excited to be on the other side of the podcast. Other side of the microphone. Am I allowed to say that? Is that okay? (laughs) You are fully allowed to. But yes, I'm very excited to have you on. I'm excited to jam on being a creator, content worth collecting, all of the things that you've been thinking about and playing with. But before we even do that, maybe you could give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Definitely. So I got into crypto in 2017. Um, I came across Bitcoin at 20K, as a lot of us did. Um, And that's sort of like what caught my attention. But what kept me in the rabbit hole was seeing what you could do with the underlying tech. I've been a musician ever since, since the age of five, actually playing the drums. And I noticed how like blockchain tech could help musicians, specifically when it came to like managing data or distributing payments. I was like, well, you can do more with this stuff other than just trade. Um, so that sort of like helped me dive, I guess, like headfirst into the space um, to the point where I started writing in Facebook groups after reading the Bitcoin white paper. If you want to meet me in this classroom at like 3 p.m. on a Saturday, I'll be doing a whiteboard session. So the only reason I bring that example is because my sort of like value add, I guess, to the space is I consider myself as like an educator, community builder, amateur at product, uh, and a podcaster. And sort of like through education by starting a club at USC um, to then getting my first internship working at a VC fund. I lived in Europe for a little bit working with different crypto startups between Austria and Switzerland, only to come back to LA and join that fund that I was interning for full time. And I was there for about a year and a half. And my crypto creator journey started at that fund with uh, with a show that I hosted called Blockchain and Booze. Um, and very, very grateful for Alon and Joseph and Tim at that fund that gave me that platform to explore my creative endeavors. And uh, basically Blockchain and Blues, Booze excuse me, was this fun series that we do every Tuesday evening during COVID um, to try to stimulate energy online because we were locked in our homes we had nothing to do. We couldn't go share our ideas over a drink. So we brought it online. And then shortly after, about like a year and a half later, of doing blockchain and booze and a bunch of other stuff at the fund. I quit, started Mint, wanted to double down on documenting the creator economy because I saw not a lot of people were doing it. And there was an opportunity to create a podcast and a newsletter in that section. And then, um, yeah, being a creator and having so many conversations, as I'm sure, Chase, you can attest to, you come across new problems and new opportunities that may be worth solving. And uh, through that, like product interests, joined hackathons, and then slowly came to Bello, which we can talk about later. So that's that's just the TLDR, um, but I'm sure we'll talk more about Bello as we continue the conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited to chat on all of that. And I guess just at like a very high level, I feel like everyone has a different answer to this. So I'm curious how you think about it. And it's such a cliche question, but what does it mean to be a creator to you? Being a creator in general, without the context of, uh, I guess, applying crypto and and Web3 primitives to it, is, I guess, being like a creative entrepreneur, trying to use your creative endeavors to build an audience around it and to find ways to monetize through it. That's sort of like what I think about. Yeah, I really like that. And I think You've done some very interesting experiments around podcast NFTs, which I want to talk a little bit about. I think this idea around being like a creative entrepreneur is really interesting and probably very related to some of those experiments that you've been running and things that you've been doing. So can you talk a little bit about what you've been doing with podcast NFTs? And also maybe even before you get into that, where did this idea for podcast NFTs come from? So I've been experimenting with podcast NFTs um for i think like eight months now and you asked me what am i doing with podcast nfts my answer to that is that i don't know what i'm doing i'm (laughs) literally just like experimenting um and throwing shit at the fan and trying to see what sticks podcasts are a form of media that have yet to be explored in web3 
while music, digital art, photography, and video have already had their sort of start and they've built collector bases around that form of media, podcasts are sort of unexplored yet huge market. Um, there's tons of podcasters. It's, it's a huge it's a huge market just to begin with. I don't know what the the, the numeric is. I think it's well over a billion dollars. Um, Spotify is doubling down on podcasts, acquiring the Joe Rogan show. Like there's something here. There's something of value here. And why can't it be content that's also worth collecting? You know, so my my itch with podcasts sort of stemmed from people in my community, like people that I've had on the podcast already, like Cooper, Cooper Turley or or Brett Shear from Palm Tree Crew, sort of like bugging me around these concepts, um, seeing what other podcasters were doing. Shout out to Diana Chen on Rehash. Um, and trying to take my own spin at it. Yeah, I really love that. And I think you mentioned this idea of content worth collecting, which is sort of the, the I think it's fair to say it's like the theme of the current season. Um, and so I'm curious what content worth collecting actually means. What makes something worth collecting? That's a great question. And part of issuing a season, like as you alluded to, Chase, is trying to understand what the theme means. So when I curate my seasons for the podcast, I do it because I don't know what I want to know. I just want to know more about it. And I curate a lineup, like a, a lineup of people that can attest to it and could speak to different parts of it. So as I record every single episode, I have a more refined understanding of what it means to create content worth collecting. And then pair that with the theory that's being created and like the educational content that's being created, pair that with action. So I try to be like the practitioner behind the content I create um, versus just like talking and blabbering and whatnot. Um, and I do it as a way so that I can reinforce my understandings and bring more content and better value podcasts, which you talked about when you were on, on Mint, when I was interviewing you. You know, you, you, you practice and, and you play around and contribute to all these DAOs. And then through that, you can create really solid content around that. So I like to take a similar approach for podcasts. But throughout, I think we're like on episode 15 of season seven. There's about like 20, 25 episodes in the season. Um, there is no real definition to what it means to create content worth collecting. On, on I think it was like January 1st or December 31st or something, I published a, a blog post on Mirror, basically making it a goal of mine to, to focus 2023 on creating more content that's worth collecting because I feel incredibly fatigued by the algorithms and I publish between like 15 to 20 pieces of content across TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and my newsletter, audio networks, uh, and so on and so on and so forth. And I feel a, a, an immense amount of fatigue and it gets very expensive too. Um, and my sort of like vision behind building towards uh, a community or a, a world of creating content that's worth collecting is finding a group of people that appreciate my content um, and that want to support it either in the form of patronage, participation, whatever their incentives may be, but kind of recognize my creative endeavors. And if it provides value, uh, maybe it's worth collecting. If it strikes an emotion, if it elicits a, a laugh, if it motivates you to collect something or enter a field that you otherwise wouldn't have thought of entering, maybe that's considered content worth collecting. So a good example of thinking about like content that's worth collecting in the context of Web2, I think the ideal candidate is Mr. Beast. He creates content that's worth collecting. You know, it's these grandiose videos that are incredibly clickbaity um, and a lot of time and thought and effort goes into it. That video that he created that he cures the blind, right? Like as he, as he mm -hmm. titled it, like in my opinion, that's content worth collecting. I was touched. I felt something through that. I feel a level of connection to it. I thus want to collect it you know, mm. and, and, and be a part of that, that, that ecosystem that he may build out around those who collect his content. But mm. that's sort of like the, the surface level thing. And I have a bunch of other thoughts, but I'll leave it out there. Yeah. I mean, I guess just logistically speaking to kind of lay the groundwork, I feel like you mentioned you've been experimenting over the last eight months with podcast NFTs. And it's been interesting to watch it evolve because I think at one point you were doing like seasonal NFTs. And now I believe it's per episode, unless I'm wrong. Um, so it, it sort of evolved over time, right? Yeah. So the way I do NFTs for Mint, um, since episode one, all revenue has been on chain. Um, season one, episode one, sponsors, every time they, they, they want to be a part of the season, they collect my non-transferable NFT that's unique to them. Um, listeners who participate in the season get a listener pin. That pin is unique to them per season. So I try to incorporate as many things on chain. And now I started to tokenize my episodes 
So now more content itself, recorded content is now on chain, or I guess, let alone living on IPFS, but the tokens itself, right, live on chain. Um, so this new, this new sort of like branch of, of collectible content um, has touched upon like, what does it mean to collect a podcast and a, a podcast NFT? And it's less about like proving your membership and your engagement through collecting a listener pin or becoming a sponsor. It's more so, I like this content. It made me feel something. It inspired me to buy this music NFT or it, it, it motivated me to do X. I'm going to collect it because I think more people may get inspired by this. And there may be, uh, I guess, an opportunity in the future to, uh, to be a part of something bigger than just mm. listening to an episode. Yeah. And I think there's something interesting here. So like at the level of per episode, it starts to remind me of, you know, like it's one thing to have like a, a listener pin for a season or whatever, but it's another thing to say, I'm creating this piece of content. I'm doing this interview, you know, I'm creating this atomic unit of content and I'm making it collectible. Um, and it reminds me a lot more of like what we see in Web2 social networks. You know, when I write a tweet, like I'm, I am kind of thinking about like who's going to like it. And it, it, they can do that because it's an atomic tweet. And so I'm curious, like, when you're recording podcast episodes, are you thinking, like, mm, who's going to collect this? Are you, are you in the back of your mind? Like, I hope, you know, at least this many people collect it. So I'm very curious if you have a, if you're seeing some of that in the Web3 collector ecosystem. So I'll answer, I'll answer the first part of the question. Um, the level of anxiety that comes from tokenizing something, putting it out to the world, and then having nobody collect it is definitely there. Um, I've had a bunch of stuff that is still available to mint that just didn't get touched because the way I rolled it out wasn't strategic enough and it wasn't intentional mm. enough. For example, um, there's a few episodes in the beginning of season seven that I tokenized that I tried using Zora embeds on my personal website because I want to try to drive as much traffic to my personal domain as possible. Um, so I used the Zora embeds to kind of create my own landing page, my own storefront on adamlevy.io. Um, and release that link as like uh, the link that people should go and listen to. And if they want to collect as they're listening, then they have the option to because the module to collect is right then and there. So it was like a Spotify playlist embed and then a Zora minting embed. And instead of posting my Substack URL, I posted the URL to my domain and it, it flopped. It flopped multiple mm. times. So I learned that when you drop any form of NFT, like unless I'm like, Dehoff, whatever the guys who created Vine, and I could just tweet like new experiment or uh, or something like uh, uh, like a teaser ish, and then have everybody mint it out instantly because I have a, a mass Twitter following and a paradigm network. Like I'm not like that, you know. I'm not that person, so I need to be more strategic mm -hmm. with how I I publish things and how I communicate things. Um, so I learned that I have to do like drop events around a podcast, so I can't publish an episode. And then like be, oh, and if you want to collect this episode, like here's a link, enjoy the episode. No, I have to publish the episode and then I have to promote it, create animation around it and do this entire thing that captures people's attention for, for a certain amount of time that will then lead their attention to collecting something if they, if they deem it valuable or if they want to collect mm. through their patronage, right? So hmm. when it comes to like the anxiety rich element, like if I felt anxiety behind every single drop that I would do, I would never do anything, whether it's my drop or whether it's work-related stuff. So I try not to think too much about it. And I just try to throw shit at the fan and just like tweet like, all right, back to experimenting. Like, let's try something <laughs> new and see what happens. Because I'm literally like picking up data points and lessons learned across every single step of the way that I then bring back to the drawing board and improve my next drop. So mm -hmm. I, I, and that goes to like some of the animated pieces that I've been doing recently where I find a guest, I put them in their habitat and it looks like we're having two conversations using our PFPs. Like that's been a fun animation that people have been vibing with and has been able to kind of differentiate, I guess, my content from other content. So that's been fun. So that's on like the anxiety inducing part. The other part is sort of like what my thesis is for like a collectible creator economy. I, my bet is that your community of collectors will outpace your community of followers. And it's already happened for me, right? Mm. And I think there's more value in building a collector base because the new online is on chain. So the more you have like a collector base around you, the more important and the more valuable your community is going to be. And it's predicated on a few macro factors. Like 
more people need to enter Web Web three. More people need to download MetaMask and use that as their gateway to enter the the Web three ecosystem, so that they can start collecting stuff. But on the other hand, you have a you have a wide variety of users in existence right now in in the crypto community and collectors, right? Thousands of them that you can sort of like start building an audience around. Um, and the biggest unlock as to why I think it's going to be incredibly valuable is because in Web three. I think the value comes from being able to own your community. And with that comes kind of capturing more of the value that you create. So that comes in the form of data. Okay. So by having a collector, I know no, I now know a lot more things about them than I would if I were just to go through my Spotify analytics and see my download count. So mm-hmm. now I know what other communities they're a part of. I know what their purchasing behavior is like. I know all these like granular statistics on them that I can then use to improve my content. So for example, I learned that a lot of my community is native to Zora. And prior to that, I never really created content alongside Zora. Once I figured out that statistic, guess what I started doing? Creating content around Zora. And now I try to incorporate Zora to some extent uh, across every season, every other season or so. And my download counts improve because of that, because I have a crypto native listener base. So I'm able to use on-chain data that's derived through my collector base to improve my content strategy offline or off-chain. And it's just like, it's like a it's like a full circle moment. And it also comes with like the NFTs that I that I mint. So I'm gonna figure out my price range for my NFTs based off what my community of collectors spend right now. So I'm not gonna charge 0.5 for something if I know that my community is in the behavioral range of purchasing stuff for 0.02 or 0.03. You know, like I'm gonna meet them where they're at, especially for a new piece of content, a new piece of media that's so unknown and has yet to be explored. So that's sort of how I think about it. And I provided data as one example, but there's a bunch of other examples that we can go into. Hmm. I'm curious, like when you think about what this ends up looking like, you know, five years from now or whatever the time horizon ends up being, do you think that people will truly just collect all of the content that they love in the same way that you, I mean, obviously it's a little bit different, but like something on TikTok or Twitter? like. What do you think the the right framing for what the future of content collection actually looks like might be? You brought up a great example. And the analogy that I like to use is it's it's the the act, the action of liking something on TikTok that, that then ends up in your uh, liked favorite folder is mm-hmm. the same action that occurs when you collect something and ends up in your wallet. It's like the same sort of like behavior, right? So if you can obscure a lot of the the BS that comes with interacting with a transaction from signing a message and the MetaMask interface and all that stuff and make it more native UI wise, you know, to what people are already accustomed to, I see no reason why we can't kind of like spearhead and memify collectible content because it ends up just being incredibly better for the creator. The only thing that's missing right now is like the distribution and the algorithms that kind of like like circulate content to people that like whatever it is that they're collecting or whatever it is they want to see. And I think it shows you how early we are. If you look, if you zoom out and you and you think of yourself as like a hawk and you're flying over the Grand Canyon and you can see like the ecosystem from above, we're super early in that stage because we have metadata problems. Uh, we have we have platform problems. Crypto mobile still sucks, you know? So there's a lot of big macro things that prevent that vision from coming to life. But I see those behaviors from collecting something on TikTok and it being added to your favorites folder to collecting, or excuse me, liking something on TikTok and it being added to your favorite folder to collecting something in Web3 and it being added to your wallet. You know, it's very, it's very analogous. Same thing with YouTube. Like right now, people are publishing on YouTube and it's no different than if you publish it on Lens or or Glass, for example. The element of liking something or subscribing to something could be the same thing as collecting something, right? It's just the way you frame it and you gamify um, and you normalize that experience. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess like the obvious difference here would be that in Web 2, it doesn't cost money to like something. And so, you know, when you think about what it means to collect, of course, there are open editions and um, free NFTs, which I think Mirror has experimented a lot with. And of course, like a, a lot of the podcast NFT sort of landscape, I think, is really playing with this. So I'm curious when you think about what it means to actually like monetize versus sort of have free and open editions. Um, what's the what's the thought process there? I think fees are gonna are gonna scale to zero 
at some point. If they don't scale to zero, then the platforms are going to accrue the fees themselves. A good, a good example is just look at Lens Protocol, for example. Um, everything, every interaction is on chain, like almost every interaction. Um, and they've obscured a lot of the Polygon transaction fees because, yeah, there's just like pennies, pennies of pennies mm. on the dollar. Um, so the value that they accrue from building a network, a network effect on their protocol does not outweigh like the transaction costs that they're incurring themselves on the Polygon network of it being super, super cheap right now. So with time, that's only going to get better. Like today, Coinbase announced Base, you know, a new L2 that will enable millions of DAP builders to, to usher in billions of users as long as they build on their optimism, uh, I guess, enriched uh, platform, you know, mm. so and, I, and I'm not too caught up with what's happening over there, but there's a race to improve the infrastructure layer so that we can build better applications. And uh, I, I believe in the in the builders and the entrepreneurs to figure that out. Um, mm. So it doesn't it doesn't demotivate my vision or my thesis of what I think is going to happen. I think over time things are just going to get better as they always do. Um, from an optimistic perspective, I may be delusional. <laughs> some may say, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious in that context when you think about like okay, so I can I could see the world in which what you collect is sort of this. Um, growing, like for lack of a better word, collection of um, like digital artifacts and things that you love. And maybe that is how you sort of show your identity. I think Mirror has sort of spearheaded what this looks like at a platform level as well, Lens and others. Um, but I'm curious when you think about like why someone would collect. Um, so there's patronage, which you kind of mentioned earlier. There's this idea of like maybe signaling who you are and what you're interested in. Are there other things that you see as like interesting derivatives of what's possible when you collect these things on chain from a collector perspective? Or do you think it's mainly going to be patronage and this like sort of identity signaling thing? I think there's also the role of curation. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, so we said identity building, right? We said uh, patronage. And then the third one I'm bringing up is curation because a lot of people wallet watch and like, for example, when Pranksy buys into something, there's a band of people that follow him. So I think in the mm -hmm. future, there's going to be tools that sort of enable affiliate links that allow Pranksy to earn a commission based off the people that he brings to a project. So those are more like financial based incentives. Um, but I think the biggest ones that we see today is the signaling and the like the identity layer, like saying, oh, I collect music NFTs. I found this artist before you did, and here's the NFT to prove it. There's the element of speculation too, you know, being able to, to flip it on secondaries because we'd all be lying um, if we didn't have that little part in our head basically telling us maybe there's a chance that this could be a board eight. Who knows, <laughs> you know, and I bought it at the $800 mark. Um, so I think it comes down to, to sort of those categories. I'm super excited to see how the curation landscape evolves um, and how we can incentivize curators to be more part of the ecosystem because web2 really abandoned curators um i think the earliest versions of like curators were on like music blogs and they would monetize often through ads right or if like the label would pay them to to push an artist on onto their platform to their to their website visitors um but i think web2 has really abandoned the curator and web3 enables that through the the, the programmable nature that it is today um so i'm curious to see how that sort of pans out mm. Yeah. And even like mentioning something like affiliate like links makes me think about, you know, like more broadly, I am curious when we think about fees going to zero and collecting is the new liking and all this stuff. What does it look like for creators to actually make money? You know, I think, of course, we've seen the royalties debate heat up a lot and it's sort of become clear that royalties like you were talking about around fees will probably go to zero. Um, or at least that's what it seems like right now. And so um, in a world where open editions are common, people want their their work to get um, pushed and collected by as many people as possible. What does it look like for people and creators to actually make money on their content? So there's a few ways, okay? Um, and there's two things that I want to see people more experiment with that I'd, I'd be curious. Um, whoever's listening and you have ideas, hit me up. But just because royalties are sort of like under threat, you know, it's crazy, Chase, like Web3 was supposed to be a, a place to empower the creator. And now platforms have put the creator in between the war, 
right? Mm-hmm. And they put us at, at jeopardy of what's happening. Um, but that's okay because I think there still needs to be more innovation around the primary sale component. I feel like being able to just like connect a wallet and mint something that kind of defines the primary sale. I think there's more to be explored on that realm and there's more to be explored on building a relationship. So despite royalties being kind of stripped from us, we still own the primary sale and we still own the part that comes and happens after the mint. So the relationship in the community building. So I think there's more ways to monetize through that. But even more so, let's not forget that one of the biggest revenue drivers for creators in general are brand collaborations and brand sponsorships Um, and finding partners that you affiliate in that your community affiliates uh, like really tightly with has never been easier and more powerful than in Web3. Because if you have a community of collectors, you can understand what their preferences are. You can understand what other communities they're a part of. If I notice that a certain percentage of my community is native to Mirror, for example, and they're collecting a lot of writing NFTs, then I may go to the Paragraph founder, try to buy an ad from Paragraph, right? And market their services to the Mirror community and in a way to try to drive more traffic to Paragraph. And the beauty behind that is the creator is the platform. And now you have these granular insights that you otherwise couldn't really get as a Web2 native creator, building an audience and, and, and fragmented audience across siloed platforms, right? So I think a lot of creators need to explore more brand collaborations. Chase, I think you do that with, with Rabbit Hole as being a sponsor. Um, Rehash Podcast does it and a few other creators do it. But I think there's going to be more of that experimentation. And I think people need to be more vocal about their, their use cases and their case studies around that to inspire more people to do it. So yeah, I think there's more to be made than just secondaries. And it was inevitable mm. that it would be a race to zero because in the in the basic form of economics, like you're going to have people threatening OpenSea and it's a it's a war on percentages, like without a doubt. So those are just some thoughts. Do you, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think one challenge, of course, is that a lot of artists were sold on this idea of royalties, not understanding that they're not enforced at a protocol level, um, meaning that, you know, Ethereum itself doesn't enforce royalties. It's the platforms like OpenSea. And so you can always fork OpenSea and build your own version and take away royalties. And I think the first challenge is that we lost a lot of the trust of creators coming into the space because they were sold on this vision of royalties and, you know, being able to make sure that even in secondaries, like they were compensated and all these things. And that's kind of turned out to be wrong and um, an empty promise. And I think just at like a ground level, we definitely have some trust building to do again. And then I think The second piece that interests me here is where can we start to build models that don't rely on advertising? Like, I think what you're talking about makes a lot of sense and is particularly powerful in the context of leveraging on-chain data. And I know Bello is also probably enabling some of that stuff, which I want to talk about. But but I'm also like, damn, there's got to be another way, you know, Um, because there's so much talk about the creator economy and ownership economy and what these things will do. And I guess one potential way for that to be true is that collecting isn't just about patronage. It's also about getting ownership in some network and part of a creator. Like it would be fascinating to do a vote on on the other side, podcast listeners of um, not just who they want to see, which I think Rehash has done such a great job in. But like, let's say I wanted to do like a really fun, weird merch drop. Like that would be interesting to have people vote on. So um, I'm hopeful that there are other ways that that we can create value and share that value with listeners. But I think it's definitely challenging when it feels like all of the exciting monetization models that have been created that have felt sustainable um, sort of have all of these like downsides. I don't know if that resonates with you. It does. And the first thing that I think about is our Web3 creativity is outpacing the rules of the SEC. So as much as we want to create incentives and interesting mechanisms and ways to share revenue and value with with creators. And maybe value is arbitrary here. Maybe there's more value to be shared than just money. But mm. that tends to be the sugar that people tasted that they want more and to be a part of, you know. So um, it's kind of restricting. Like it's it, we're restricted within the boundaries. And not every creator wants to go head to head with the SEC or or like be a part of a of a lawsuit and risk their life, you know, for for sharing value. So they'll stick to their norms, you know. And 
okay, maybe some craters, maybe even too small for the SEC to go after. But re like history shows that the SEC goes after celebrities and influencers and whatnot based off their, their uh, I guess, irresponsible ways of promoting crypto and whatnot. Mm. Um, but I, I realize that those, those two examples that I gave are too different. Like it's, it's celebrities pumping and dumping shit versus people actually creating like a crater DAO, you know, and, mm. and trying to, uh, to align people within their creative endeavors. So, um, the thing that I, I try to experiment more with, or that I've been experimenting with, um, on the podcast are the concepts of free NFTs, but non-transferable free NFTs. So NFTs that mm. have no speculative nature. I've been doing that since season two, um, by default, like the NFTs that I release and I've released tens of thousands of them that people have collected already. They have no secondary value. I make no money off the royalties and people always ask me like, why? And I use NFTs as a tool to understand who my community is. It's less mm -hmm. of a way to, for me to monetize them. I introduce things of like podcast NFTs to try to create uh, like fair playing ground for those who do have that that uh, the NFT degen in them and they want to be a part mm -hmm. of a new a new media class, you know, like podcasts. But majority, like I try to fray away from monetizing uh, my listeners because that becomes very sensitive. It becomes super, super sensitive. And I don't want to not, I don't want to like, uh, like avoid including people because they don't have the means to do it. Like the point of the podcast is to motivate and inspire a new class of creators to use crypto primitives to build, monetize and own their audience. And I think a good way to do that is creating a very low barrier to entry. And if you're going to be a, a, an educational network, you know, and create educational content, find really low barrier ways to enter your community and teach people about this crypto native creator economy. I do it mm. by free NFTs, non-transferable free NFTs on Polygon and Ethereum, right? So if you don't have the money, I'll, I'll send you some Matic. Just come and mint the NFT, come unlock the gated content and see what this process is like. Um, mm. So... That comes from someone who who I'm like, I empathize with the creators who don't have, uh, I guess, like the the secondary uh, royalties to, yeah, I kind of like latch on. But I think it was inevitable and it was too good to be true. Um, and it's going to be great because it's going to inspire people to get more creative and more experimentative. And we're going to discover new models of monetization that we probably haven't even thought of yet. You know, so I think it's all beneficial. It's all positive. Again, I may be delusional and too optimistic here, but <laughs> I, I think I, I, st I still have the wag me energy in me. It takes a certain amount of delusion to build in crypto in general, I think. But um, I'm also curious, you know, when, when I think about, I, I totally agree that like hopefully we'll find new monetization models that are more sustainable. And one thing that I know has been something that's like sort of bubbling up over the last few years around like the creator economy and all this stuff that I think Web3 potentially has the uh, possibility of only worsening is this idea of like the financialization of everything and the financialization of content. And I think we've already seen this again in Web2 bubble up. Um, but I'm curious how you think about what that looks like from the perspective of, you know, like what does it mean to like reorient yourself as an artist to please collectors so that they collect your work because now you can't do, you know, secondary sale royalties. Like, are you worried about that? How do you think we we sort of approach um, that? Like, even when I think about just for context, like I know um, there there have been lots of really interesting studies about like the moment that people start working for money, like they don't then if you love your job and then you sort of switch to, oh, I'm just doing this to get the paycheck. Um, you, you show up in a totally different way. Um, and there have been lots of studies on, you know, work quality and and happiness and fulfillment in your job and all this stuff. And so Part of me worries that as we financialize a lot of these things, um, yes, we might make these things sustainable for creators to continue doing, but we also get to a point where it's like, damn, uh, you know, you're just sort of pleasing your collectors um, and it's sort of the same, the same dragon in a different skin where it used to be you're pleasing galleries and trying to win those people over and now you're pleasing this group of people on the internet. So I'm curious how you think about that. You may be pleasing in, in, in for the sake of how you're describing it, you may be pleasing um, like a new new user base. Like you're not pleasing the galleries. You're you're pleasing like the everyday collector. Um, I would argue that's one step forward than what we were doing before. Um, instead mm -hmm. of pleasing the platforms that we provide value to or the the big, uh, I guess like, uh, yeah, the big middlemen that we provide the, the value to. Now everybody has a choice 
to be a part of that value. Um, and again, it, it comes down to the creator of whether or not they want to financialize everything in their God-given soul, you know, when it comes to, <laughs> to, to creating a community or they can experiment with non-transferable free stuff, you know, that yeah. acts as like a top level funnel to bring and usher in people. But the reality is, is like, I still need to eat. I still need to breathe. I still need to feed my, like, I need to, I need a roof over my head. I need my basic necessities. And I could either do that by being a slave to the algorithms. Um, and I'm not one to speak 100% confidently on this yet because I am still a slave to the algorithms. Um, or I could just go Web3, like, rogue, you know, and go completely just like in the, in the crypto trenches of trying to build a, a, a complete collector base. And if you want to listen to my stuff, then you have to buy my stuff. You have to collect my stuff and then you can access my stuff. Mm. Um, I think right now it's going to hurt more people than actually help people because we don't have the right tools. It goes back to what I was saying, like crypto mobile sucks. Um, data is like very, very, very weird still. Um, so yeah, I, I hear you, Chase. And I think you have a point like, is it really better to financialize everything? If everything is about money, what kind of environment do we create? Becomes very toxic because we just talk about numbers all day. I think the data shows so far, we are tokenizing more and more and people don't feel like that. Like it's attracted traders, but then here you and I are, you know, like we're still mm. in the bear market despite losing money or I lost money, you know, unrealized gains, but I'm still going hard and I still believe in what we're doing. I know that there's something at the end of the tunnel here that extends beyond money. And I think it really comes down to each their own. Like literally everybody has their own incentives and they can use these tools because that's what they are at the end of the day. They're tools. Technology is a tool. And depending on how you use a tool, kind of like alters your outcome. So you can use the tool to financialize everything. You can use a tool to do free, non-transferable everything. You know, um, it really comes down to the person. Yeah, it kind of makes me think this is tangential, but I was watching this video about, it was a TikTok, about this guy who started creating on OnlyFans and he was saying how in the beginning he was like, this is so awesome, like I'm my own boss and I get to, you know, do all of these fun things for a living, like this is great. And it was like a year and a half in and he was like, I am so uh, exhausted by constantly being at the whim of these people who pay for access to my videos and all this stuff. And I think like no matter what, the systems that we create are going to have downsides. But it does make me kind of wonder like whether or not we're going, you know, basically sovereignty comes at the at a cost. And sometimes that cost is often that cost is placed more on individuals than on um, anyone else. And maybe that's true even now with like content creators in web too. But it makes me wonder if we're going to need like stronger social safety nets to support creators because being sovereign is amazing, but it's also kind of lonely. And it comes with a lot of other challenges that I think, um, you know, being part of a record label or, or whatever um, does have a lot of benefits in the realm of just like being supported. I think the example that you gave is a problem of the platform. Because the mm -hmm. platform's mechanics are designed to fatigue creators to that extent. Because again, they, 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 become, uh, they become slaves to their publication like rate, right? So they have to consistently deliver and consistently deliver through that platform sort of like, uh, I guess, uh, rules, you know, because they're playing a game and they have to follow the rules of the platform. And it, it's actually like one of my biggest problems that I have with DAOs. Because, or at least creator DAOs for, for the matter, let me, let me clarify. Um, <laughs> because like, if you, if you really want to like think of a traditional by the book creator DAO, it's basically like very much so in OnlyFans, but there's more financial upside between those who, who kind of join your community um, at a certain given time. Um, and I think everybody, again, has a choice. And the only difference between the OnlyFans example that you gave and what we're doing here is that's interoperable. Right. And I have more control over that, those, th those publishing behaviors. So I don't have to become a slave to my community if I don't set that behavior from the get go. But if I give people the expectation that this is what they're going to receive from me, like it doesn't, it doesn't require like rocket science to see that that's what's going to happen at the end of the day. Like you're going to get that level of fatigue. So my point being is like in Web3, you can build a community, like a subscriber base, if you want to call it in the context of OnlyFans using NFTs. 
but you can set sort of, I guess, uh, the frequencies and the rates and the expectations that people have, have to receive from you using these token primitives. And mm. I, you, someone could even argue like, you don't need the tokens to do that. Like I can post less on OnlyFans and my subscribers will expect one post per month versus 10 posts a day. Um, I think it, I think it comes down to the person too. So, but back to like the self-sovereignty, again, I, I think there's no better platform to achieve the OnlyFans model or that creator model than in the context of crypto. Because again, it goes back to owning your audience, publishing on platforms that you have more say and more control over and uh, kind of like being the platform at the end of the day. Because on OnlyFans, if I build up a subscriber base on OnlyFans, that's native to OnlyFans. I can't bring those people with me elsewhere. But if I build a subscriber base on on Web3 fans, which is like a Web3 native <laughs> OnlyFans, if I decide that I no longer want to be on Web3 na uh, Web3 uh, fans, I could take that community with me to a different destination, right? So I don't know. I, I see what you're saying. I get it. But I think I think it's very like an edge, like edge case basis. Mm. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be fascinating to see how like, I think we don't really fully understand the impacts of self, full self-sovereignty yet. And so I'm I'm very interested to see what that looks like and, and where our social fabric starts to need to come in and support individuals. Um, but I also want to get to Bello because I think there's something really interesting around this idea of creating content that's worth collecting and and having your community of collectors outpace your community of followers but also being able to make that information like legible and understandable, which I think is very much along the lines of what Bello is doing. So maybe you can give a little bit of like a, a brief overview of Bello um, and then we can dive into it a little. Perfect. Yeah. Um, you're on the money. A lot of the inspo behind doing themes is taking data from stuff that I've learned in the past and applying it to wanting to learn more and chase my curiosity further. And, and one of those things kind of fall in the lap of Bello. And Bello, the TLDR, is a no-code blockchain analytics tool that allows creators to understand who their collectors are. In a world where blockchain data is hard to fetch and understand, Bello provides insights and clarity as to who your community is, who your collectors are, and what actions you can take using the data that you technically own, right? Um, and I guess by owning, it's like it's on chain. It's 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 transparent. Anybody can read it, but it's very hard to read it oftentimes. And Bello fits into the picture because creators don't know how to code. So you need a no code way to surface those insights. And the tools that are available right now are very developer heavy. So that's where Bello comes in. Uh, Bello stemmed from a problem that I faced myself. I gave out a lot of free pins to, to my community, built up a collector base. And again, Chase, it goes back to the thesis that I told you. It's like, I had a feeling, or not my thesis, the hypothesis that I had a feeling where I was like, if I knew more about my community of collectors, I could probably find better ways to create content for them, aka the Zora example, and find better ways to monetize them, aka the podcast NFT example. Um, so Bello got started at, in April 2022 at ETH Global's uh, DevCon Hackathon in Amsterdam. Um, and... Ellie and I, we sort of took, Ellie's the co-founder of Bello, shout out Ellie Farisi. Uh, we took that idea. We went to ETH Amsterdam. We built a version of it at the hackathon. And then we were one of the winners, sort of selected out of 165 projects. And we've been working on it since. We came out with a uh, private beta on August 5th. And uh, recently we announced that we got into A16Z's crypto startup school. And we'll be using like the next three months to further fledge out uh, what Bello is and finding more of our community to, to kind of discover their, their collector insights. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating, especially because like as someone who could feasibly and did try to do a podcast, um, I wanted to do a podcast POAP, but it did not work correctly because <laughs> POAP has really specific rules on distribution, but that is neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I was thinking about and, and struggling with along those lines and even with like, um, people who have supported the show on Gitcoin, shout out to all the people who have supported the show on Gitcoin, you're the best. Um, you know, like it's one of those things where I'm like, I can see on Gitcoin who some of these people are, but I can't see who other people are. And so um, being able to understand who is supporting the show um, is is so valuable. And even from the perspective of like, it's crazy all the data that's on chain that I don't get to see from, you know, my 
dashboards on analytics on who listens to the podcast. Obviously, I get specific data. It's like geographical data that I wouldn't get otherwise um, on chain. But there is so much stuff on chain that it's actually a little spooky how much you can like cross reference um, and understand and get a bigger and better picture of who someone is and and who your listeners are. I'm curious, um, have you had any like weird surprises on who who has been collecting your content or any weird like trends that you wouldn't have expected? Yeah, um, I guess for me, um, the the biggest like most prominent example was the Zora example of noticing that people are active on Zora. Um, mm-hmm. And I hadn't really considered that. I think another example is seeing the overlaps between those who hold who are in, in forefront and an FWB. And more largely, like, uh, I guess, like from a macro perspective outside of the mid podcast and looking at like music NFT collectors, I learned from doing so many of these like beta tests and like creator onboards to to get users onto Bello. Um, we we talked to a lot of music creators. And when we do like a deep dive on the music NFT collector space, we notice that there's three communities specifically, three DAOs that majority of music collectors tend to be a part of. And that's FWB, Forefront. And for some reason, Krauss House. Um, so when I go and, and like consult creators based off what communities they should be spending time in, time in, I always tell them, go buy FWB, go buy Forefront, and go join Krauss House and be mm. in those communities because you could probably find like-minded people. And the same thing applies to you, Chase. What if I told you, you can take every single contributor that contributed to your Gitcoin grant, plug those addresses into Bello, and you'll probably find other like-minded people through those contributors that you could probably find more donations to, uh, uh, from, right? Um, and ch- just trying to like uh, like put like a, a marketer's mindset on or a growth hacker's mindset on um, or growth hacker's hat on, excuse me, should I say, you can find a lot of interesting data and surface insights that you can then use to your advantage That it, that's like in a non-intrusive way, right? Like we're not trying to build, uh, what was that analytic, Cambridge Analytica? Like we're not trying to do that, right? That's not the goal of this. The goal is not to go backwards. The goal is to provide more meaning and clarity to the value that you create on chain because it's there for a reason. So why not leverage it to your advantage, right? And mm. to your benefit so that you can do more positive things for your community. Like Chase, if you knew that a lot of your community was native to, to this to DAO that you never talked about before, but a lot of them were there, like wouldn't it make sense to have that founder on at some capacity and to create content alongside that because you can grow your listener base accordingly like how how beautiful would that outcome be? So that was a lot of like the inspiration of starting a tool like Bello is us creators, like we shouldn't get the the far end of the stick. We shouldn't learn, shouldn't need to know how to program just to see the value and understand more of the value that we create on a granular level. So that was mm. the inspiration behind Bello and very much falls intact with my belief that your community of collectors will outpace your community of followers. And with that, you need a new set of tools to empower the crypto native creator economy and Bella is one of them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. Like even I did like a DAO mini series with um, my friends over at The Ready Who I Adore. And we did a lot of specific short episodes on topics that I felt like were challenges that I was facing when I was doing like really heavy DAO work and and contributing um, like all of my time towards DAOs. And one of the fascinating things about being able to understand like, okay, if all if like a lot of my collectors are members of Crosshouse or contributors, there's something interesting about going and looking at like what governance proposals are really contentious right now and how can I bring in experts who can speak on those specific things. So um, even going beyond saying I'm going to bring people from that DAO on and going further into saying I'm going to create content that I actually know um, or at least I, I hypothesize is going to be um, meaningful for them because this is something that's top of mind because these governance proposals are contentious and, you know, X, Y, and Z. So I think there's something really interesting there in, in thinking about how does this unlock the potential for not just being able to create, you know, sponsorships that are more effective or content that speaks to that community, but also um, content that's personalized based on like governance and shit that's happening because it doesn't yeah. always feel like it, but all of this is public. So on that on that topic, really quickly, like how could how cool would it be if you could understand based off your poet collect poet collectors if and when you you issue them again, <clears throat> excuse me, if and when you issue them again, you could then understand of all those collectors what percentage of them are actually voting on stuff and in which mm-hmm. communities, 
right? And then based off that, you can find new sponsors for the podcast, write a proposal. Hey guys, I noticed that 20% of my, my listeners, aka my collectors, are also native to your DAO. We've never done anything together. ETH Denver is coming up. Maybe we should host an event. I could promote it. You guys can rally in people. It'd be this cool thing. Or I have this idea for like an on-chain collab that we can do where I'm into free NFT. We can co-brand it with your, with your DAO's logo on it. And we can have our community cross-pollinate with, with one another and kind of like be net, net positive for, for each of us, you know? So then you can use data to sort of inspire new insights and new actions that you, you create on-chain. And even off-chain, content, being inspired by what sort of content to create is definitely off-chain. Like part of season seven was curated because I noticed that a lot of my community were purchasing noun derivatives. So I brought mm -hmm. Gami from NarsDAO, who was like a big supporter of the NarsDAO ecosystem. Um, onto the podcast. And we talked about skating and we talked about life and we talked about it ended up being an amazing episode that people really got a, a knack for. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of possibilities that have yet to be explored, but Bello is going to be at the forefront of, of figuring that out. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating and I'm very excited to see what happens in the future of that. Um, Adam, it was so wonderful to have you on the show. Where can people learn more about you, Bello, listen to Mint, all of Thanks. Amazing. Thank you for having me, Chase. Um, really, really had a great time. Uh, we should definitely do this again soon at some point. It'd be cool to do a in-person, like a, like a conference interview. Yes. But we can we can shoot this shit on that later. But if you want to find me, um, you can find me at LevyChain on Twitter, at LevyChain.Lens on Lens. Um, you can find me at levychain.substack.com, adamlevy.io, and bello.lol, like laugh out loud. That's B-E-L-L-O dot L-O-L. Chase, thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.